Let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for how you have been speaking to us through our service already today and through this book of Jonah over the last few weeks. And today, Lord, we ask that your spirit would take your divinely inspired word and speak to our hearts about the gospel of grace and the need for a saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. They talk about women loving shoes. I, I, I don't know if, if you're a female and that's your thing, that, that you've got 45, 50 pairs of shoes. I recently have developed a bit of a thing for trainers, especially Nikes, but I don't like paying full price. And so I found myself scouring eBay recently trying to pick up a bargain. And uh, just about a week and a half ago, there was one pair of Nike Air Max 95s. Now, that means nothing to most of you. But they, they're, they're normally 150, 160 pounds. This pair were uh, VGC, very good condition, second hand. Some of you that would gross you out wearing somebody else's shoes. I wash them, I disinfect them, I put new insoles in them. But anyway, that's an aside. But I was bidding for these. Air Max 95, black with a gold stripe down the side. They look good. And at the last minute, just as the time ran out, I thought I had them. And Jim Bob 1979 came in and beat me, and he won the auction. And I was a bit gutted, but that was fine. That's the way eBay is. Then a few days later, I got a message from eBay saying, you have been given a second chance. Apparently, Jim Bob 1979 didn't produce the goods. He didn't pay for the shoes. And so I was given a second chance to purchase them at the price of my last offer, which I did. I meant to bring them today to show them to you. I'm sure that you would all have been fascinated to see them. But I was delighted. In fact, the fact that I had lost them and got a second chance almost made me want them more than I had originally. It was almost like they had nearly slipped out of my grasp, but I managed to get them back. Like the old song, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. If you've ever been given a second chance, maybe something a wee bit more significant than a pair of Nike Air Max 95s with a gold stripe down the side. I wonder if there's anything that you have ever thought you have lost, but then you were given a second chance. Maybe a house. Maybe you were betting on a house. There was a house that you viewed. You fell in love with it. It was the perfect house. But then a bidding war developed. And somebody outbid you. And you were gutted. But then, maybe a month later, the estate agent calls you back and says, the sale has fallen through. It's yours if you want it. And you move into your dream house. Maybe it's a relationship, somebody that you thought you had lost forever and they come back into your life. Maybe you hurt someone, maybe you betrayed someone and you thought that relationship was finished and you were devastated and then they give you another chance. They give you a second chance. Maybe it was a job. You applied and didn't get it and you were gutted. But then again, a week later, they phone you and they say, actually, the person who got it didn't take it. And you're next on the list, and would you like it? And, and, and you get a second chance. You know, years ago, when I was at university, in the third year, we had to do a placement. And I went out and worked in this business for a year, and to be honest, it was fine. But about halfway through the year, I got bored. And I realized then that you only had to do a six-month placement, not a full year. 
And so I went and got a job somewhere else and left after six months and went to work in a shop in town in Belfast. And within about 24 hours, I realized I had made the biggest mistake ever. I stuck it out for a few more days, went groveling, humbly back to my former boss and asked, could I have my job back? And graciously, he gave it to me back. And can I say, I I appreciated that job so much more because I'd been given a second chance. 20 years ago, the Archbishop of Armagh recommended that I go to Dublin for interviews, for training, for ministry. And I don't know what was going through my head at the time, but I just didn't show up for the interviews. They were expecting me down there with a group of other people. And I don't think I fully realized the importance of it. So I just didn't show up. And a few weeks later, my rector, my minister called me and said, Craig, the Archbishop has communicated that because you didn't show up, you will never get another chance to interview for ministry again. Now, the fact that I'm standing here today indicates that I got a second chance. About three years later, the archbishop had retired. Another bishop gave me a second chance, and I can tell you I didn't miss the interviews that time. Jonah is a book all about second chances. We're on week four. I thought this would be a three-week series. We're actually going to finish it next week, but let me give you a quick recap. Jonah is a prophet about 800 years before Christ. He speaks for God to the people on behalf of God, and God gives him one mission, and it is this. Go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and preach against it that I'm going to destroy it in 40 days. But Jonah doesn't want to do it. God says go, Jonah says no. God says go this way, Jonah says I'm going the other way. So instead of going 500 miles east, he goes 2,500 miles west on a boat to Costa del Tarshish on the east coast of Spain. But when you run from God, life doesn't turn out well. Things seem to go fine for a while, but soon the wheels come off and the bottom drops out. And a storm, the Lord, basically the word says, the the, the Lord hurled a storm at the boat. And the boat was in this turbulent storm. And eventually Jonah realizes that he is the cause of the storm. He takes responsibility for his actions. And he says, the only way this is going to stop is if you throw me overboard. They're reluctant to do it, but eventually they do it to save their own lives. Jonah's thrown overboard, but the Lord had prepared. The Lord had ordained a huge fish right there in that moment to swallow him. The Lord is so intentional and so specific in how he interacts with us. And the fish swallows Jonah But Jonah is still huffing with God. And for three days, he just doesn't say anything. But eventually on the third day, he cries out to God. He prays to God. And God gives him a second chance. And so chapter 2 ends with Jonah being vomited up onto the shore by the big fish. And last week, we finished at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And I love that. The word came a second time. In other words, God gave Jonah a second 
chance. Even though he had ran, even though he was rebellious, even though he was disobedient, even though he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do, God gave him a second chance. But here's the other thing I said last week. The message didn't change. The message and the mission remained exactly the same. God didn't change his mind to suit Jonah's desires. God didn't say, well, Jonah, I know you don't want to do it, so let's negotiate. Let's change it. Let's, 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 let's reword it. Let's edit it. You know, I want to come in line with your preferences, Jonah. No. God's word remained the same and God's mission remained the same. Go to the same place. Preach the same message. And similarly, we do not get to mess with the mission or the message. As God's people, as the church, we have one mission, and that is to reach a broken and lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't get to mess with a message. It is the word of God. It is the gospel of Christ, which never changes. The method will change. Right now, you're watching me online. 30 years ago, This was not possible. You couldn't have done this. We are utilizing a new method, a new technology to preach the word of God. So the method could change and it will continue to change. And we use social media and we use YouTube and we use whatever channels we can. But the message never changes. The style may change, the sound may change, the songs may change, but the mission and the message stay the same. And the problem happens when the church begins to think they're more clever than God and they begin to mess with the message. They begin to think, well, this is the 21st century and people don't really want to hear that stuff anymore. And so they begin to tweak the message or they begin to edit the message or they begin to leave out the things that aren't politically correct or the things that people don't really like to hear or the supernatural elements of the bible that 21st century rational people don't really believe anymore and they water it out water it down and they dilute it and they change it because they don't want to offend anyone their thing is let's give people what they want to hear and if we do that they'll all come flooding into church let's give them gimmicks let's candy coat it Let's give them what they want. Let's entertain people. And that way everybody will come flooding back into church. Let's leave out all those nasty negative words like sin and judgment and the wrath of God and hell. Because people don't want to hear that. Let's just talk about love. If we could all just love each other. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about mercy. And it never works. And it has never worked. And some in the church will never learn that lesson. Sadly. That all over the world and all over this land from north to south, there are churches that are either closed or on the verge of closing because they thought that by watering down the gospel, by changing the message, they would reach more people. And it actually does the opposite. Why? Because the power is in the gospel. The power resides in the word of God. 
God has only ever promised to supernaturally back up his word. Years ago, somebody said this to me, and I've never forgotten it. If you win the world with entertainment, you've got to keep them with entertainment. And the world will always entertain better than the church because that's what the world does. But if you win people with the word of God and the spirit of God, you will always keep them because the world will never be able to replicate or duplicate the word of God and the presence of God. There's something powerful about that. I've been ordained for... This is my 15th year of ordained ministry, and by God's grace, I have seen blessing in every church where I've served. I've seen growth, I've seen salvation, I've seen favor. Can I say that it's not because of my intellectual ability? It's not because of my background. It's not because of my education. It's not because of my sparkling charisma or personality. It's not because I were clothes that are made for teenagers. It's not even because of my speaking ability, although I I guess I recognize that God has called and gifted me to this. It's not because of anything else. Do you know why it is? It's because for 15 years, every week I have spent 15 to 20 hours in this book, digging into it, preparing a message for God's people. That's where the blessing is. It is not me. Of course I do my best. I steward what God has given me. But can I say to you that if I were to stop preaching this word within months, the the blessing would lift and the place would be empty. I recognize 100% that the blessing is on me only so much as I preach the word that God blesses and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Word does the work. The Word of God empowered by the Spirit of God does the work. When I was at theological college training for the ministry one summer, I worked as a postman in South Belfast, and I generally loved it. I have to say, although there was one large house in the state called Togmona that I uh, always thought I was going to either get shot or eaten by dogs. And, but uh, generally, I absolutely love being a postman. I always say if I wasn't doing this, uh, probably the other job I'd want to do is go back to being a postman again. Um, and my job as a postman wasn't to write the letters. It wasn't to edit the mail. It wasn't to change the post. It was just to deliver it. That's all I was. My job was to be a delivery boy. And it's the same with the gospel. I am just a messenger. God has given us his word. He has given us his gospel. My job is not to change it or edit it or make it more palatable or politically correct. My job is just to deliver it. Because the power is not in my stories or my illustrations, which I try to use to bring it to life, the power is in the word of God. Paul knew this. In Romans 1.16, Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. 
That word power is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. Paul is saying that the gospel has power inherent inside it. There is supernatural power in the gospel of Jesus Christ that no other message has. There is supernatural power contained in the gospel that transforms even the most hardened, stubborn, wayward, backslidden heart. And nothing else can do it. That's what we preach. And when you hear me say preach, you might think, well, Craig, I could never stand up there and do what you do. And can I say the same to you? I could never be in some of the places you are. You will reach people that I can't reach. You have a whole circle of influence around you that I don't have. And when I say preach, I'm not talking about this. Okay? I'm talking about having a conversation. I'm talking about sending a text message. I'm talking about over lunchtime and work on a Monday, over coffee, chatting about real issues. I'm talking about sending an email to someone or a social media message to someone or that's preaching, but there's got to be some communication. You know, just last week, I was in Marks and Spencer's beside us here. I was paying at the till. The lady on the checkout, I noticed she stretched and she strained. And I said, are you okay? And she said, oh, I've hurt my back. I a really sore back. And in that moment, I just said, can I pray for you? And she said, I would love that. And right there in the middle of the shop, I just gently put my hand out. There's a line of people in the queue watching. And I, I prayed for her. And she said, thank you so much. I, I know that you're watching me and you think, Craig, that was easy for you. That's what you get paid to do. Can I tell you, I find that really, really hard. That does not come naturally to me at all. And I don't do it anywhere near as often as I could or should. My wife is so much better at that than I am. This is my sweet spot up here, okay, doing what I'm doing. Doing that for me is a stretch. It's uncomfortable. There's people watching. I don't think she was healed. But you know what? I have decided that I'm going to take every opportunity. And if the opportunity isn't presenting itself, I'm going to try and create opportunities. And she was beaming. She was so thankful that somebody would even care enough to pray. We need courage. You know what? We need courage to open our mouths. We need courage to share the gospel. And I know there's this whole thing about preach the word at all times and if necessary, use words. Can I say that that is not in the Bible? And I get the sentiment behind it that we are to live the gospel as well. But the gospel has a content. The gospel has a message. Jesus preached the word and he demonstrated it. Not one or the other. And the fear today is that the church thinks that if we're just nice people and do good deeds, then the world will suddenly wake up to a knowledge of Christ. That won't happen. There's lots of people who are non-believers who do just as good a deeds as Christians do. Of 
course we do good deeds. Of course we do acts of compassion and mercy. Of course we are generous. Of course we live godly lives. Of course we're kind. But we back it up with words. The message of the gospel. The message of the gospel has words. God's method has never changed. God speaks to people through people. It's the only way he's ever done it. He could have sent an angel to Nineveh. He could have written something in the sky. There's all sorts of ways God could have communicated with this city. But he sent a person. God reaches people through people. And if his people don't communicate his message, then people will never hear it. He doesn't use perfect people, but obedient people, ordinary people, flawed people. That way he gets the glory and not me. You see, if I'm just a messenger and people don't accept the message and they reject me, that's fine. I don't get offended because they're not rejecting me, they're rejecting the message. On the other hand, if they accept the message, I don't get big-headed because it's not me. It's the message. So I don't take the blame and I don't take the credit. It's his message and he gets all the glory. And that takes the weight off my shoulders. I cannot save anybody. It's the word of God and the power of the spirit. It's the gospel and the power of the spirit that transforms the human heart. And so God gives Jonah a second chance to preach the first message. The last time Jonah ran, but this time he has learned his lesson. Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. You know, sometimes if our little boy Elijah's being stubborn or making a fuss, it happened just a few days ago. I said this to him. I said, Elijah, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, but either way we're doing it, so you pick right now. And he goes, Daddy, I want to do it the easy way. And I go, okay, go and do what I've asked you to do. And I think God's the same sometimes. God would say to you, look, I want you to do this. You can do it the easy way by obeying me immediately, or you can do it the hard way. But either way, it's going to be done. And in 30 years of following Christ, I think I've come to the conclusion that quick obedience is the the easy way. It doesn't mean it will always be easy, but it's easier than disobedience. And here's the other thing I've discovered, that reluctant obedience is better than disobedience. You see, Jonah here still wasn't thrilled. We'll see that next week. Next week has literally got some serious comedy value, chapter 4. Jonah still didn't want to go. It wasn't like he was all now like cheerleading, rah, 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 Nineveh. He had no desire to go. But he reluctantly went because he was obeying God. God would prefer you to obey him reluctantly than to disobey him. Let's keep going, verses 3 to 4. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Think about this. I wonder how Jonah looked. He's just been inside the belly of a fish for three days. He's covered in fish vomit. He stinks. He was probably bleached from the the acid in the fish's stomach. Can you imagine the smell Like, it wasn't exactly a selfie moment for Instagram. 
I'm sure he stank. I'm sure he looked strange. Not a pretty sight. But anyway, he starts to make his way through the city. This city where they skin people alive. This city where they love to torture people. And this is his message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not the longest or most uplifting sermon I've ever heard. Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. That's it. No dramatic music in the background. No PowerPoint presentation to make it have more impact. Basically, 40 days and you're a goner. That's the sermon. Let us pray. Pretty simple. But like I said, when God's word is empowered by God's spirit, lives are transformed, people are changed, and nations can be aligned with the purpose of God. Transformation happens. Look at how the people respond in verses 5 to 9. We're nearly done. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. Some of you are twitching at the word fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and violence. Who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I love that line. The Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. When Jonah preached the message that God had given him to preach, when Jonah declared the word of God, it carried divine authority, and they recognized it as not just coming from the voice of a man, but as coming from God himself. There was an authority that God was speaking. And when God's word is preached faithfully, it carries authority. And it speaks directly to your situation. I am sure hundreds of times I have heard comments like this. Craig, it felt as if you were preaching just to me today. Or Craig, that was exactly what I needed to hear. Or Craig, it felt as if you were following me and stalking me this week, which I was not. But when God's word is preached, it does God's work. And he cuts through the rubbish in our lives. And when Jonah speaks God's word to the Ninevites, they know it is God. There is a divine authority that God, the Yahweh, Jehovah, is speaking to these people. And they respond with repentance. From the king at the top to the very animals at the bottom, they repent with sackcloth and ashes and they cry out, to God for mercy. Think about it. The king gets off his royal throne. He takes off his royal robe. He gets down in the ashes and he sits with sackcloth, burlap, this, this, this really irritating material. It was a sign of humility. It was a sign of repentance. It was a sign of, of just humbling yourself before Almighty God. 
That's true repentance. You know, the word repent often has negative connotations, doesn't it? Especially maybe here in Northern Ireland. We see the guy preaching with a sandwich board. Repent, repent. The guy with a megaphone in the middle of town shouting, repent, sinners, you're going to burn in hell, a doom and gloom preacher. We see little notices on trees up around the country, repent. Repent sounds like a negative, old-fashioned word, and yet repentance is the greatest gift God can give us. Repentance is the opportunity for a second chance. Repentance is a new start. Repentance means, it doesn't just mean feeling bad or saying sorry. It means having a change of heart. It means turning around and doing things differently. You can't repent and keep repeating what you've been doing. Let me repeat that. Because I think the church doesn't really understand that today. You can't genuinely repent and keep repeating because by its very nature, repentance means to have a change of heart, to see things differently. If you say sorry and keep repeating, that's just guilt and trying to avoid the consequences. True, genuine repentance leads to a change in your life. There's something tangible that happens. You're not perfect overnight. It's not to say you'll never struggle with sin again. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this, that when you repent, it will change your life. It looks like something. I'd never noticed this before. What was Nineveh known for? We talked about this in the first and second week. What was Nineveh famous for? Cruelty and violence. They were incredibly innovative at finding new ways to torture people. That was what Nineveh was famous for. Cruelty and violence. What does repentance lead to? Look at verse 8. Look at what the king commands the people to do. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The sin that defined them, the sin that was their identity, was the very thing that they put to one side. What will that mean for you? When you repent, what will you need to change? What is the area of your life where the enemy has the greatest stronghold that repentance will bring transformation in? At this point, they don't even know if it's going to work. Jonah hasn't told them that they're going to have a second chance. They don't know. But they're so convinced by God's word that God's judgment is coming that they're willing to do whatever it takes even if there's just a possibility that God might show mercy. Look at verse 9. Who knows, they say. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. You see, I think they figured this. God has given us 40 days. If God was going to destroy us, he would have given us 40 seconds, 40 minutes, or 40 hours. So if God has given us 40 days, there is a chance. There is some hope here. That if we repent, God will relent. You know, nobody likes giving bad news. Sure, we don't. Even as kids, if you have a brother or sister and you were playing one day and somebody broke a vase or something, it was, you have to tell mom and dad. No, you have to tell mom and dad. Nobody wants to be the bearer of bad news. 
No manager wants to have to tell their employee that they're sacked. No teenager wants to tell their boyfriend or girlfriend that they're dumped. No friend wants to tell their friend that they need to start wearing deodorant. We would much rather tell people good news. You've won. You got the job. You've lost weight. You smell amazing. The word gospel means good news, but it's only good news if we give bad news first. The good news is only really good news in light of the alternative, which is bad news. The gospel is not just God loves you. The gospel isn't even just Jesus died on the cross for you. The gospel, while they're both part of the gospel, the gospel is that all humanity is separated from a holy God because of our sin and rebellion against him and we're destined to spend eternity separated from God in hell. And we have no hope in ourselves. Our good works, our good actions, our, our, our religious rituals, none of that counts for anything. Apart from, uh, with, we just, on our own, we're completely, we're going to hell on a one-way track. But God, in his loving mercy and compassion, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, lived the perfect life that we could never live. On the cross, he took our sin and died the death that you and I should have died. And he rose again on the third day and is now seated at the right hand. And one day he's coming back to judge the world. That's the gospel. And it's only through trusting completely and, trust and totally in the finished work of Jesus that we're saved. That's the gospel. Not just God likes you, God loves you, but that Christ came to save you and through trust in him, you can know God's salvation and forgiveness of sin. Without the bad news, it just sounds like a nice story that we can take or leave. We will never fully appreciate or understand the good news until we know the bad news. It's a bit like a diamond. I remember going to shop for a diamond for Becky's engagement ring. The diamond is never set against a white background. They put it against a black velvet background because the darker the background makes a diamond sparkle. And until we understand the darkness of our hearts, we will never understand the glory and the, just how much the, the, the gospel shines in the darkness. Let's finish. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction, the destruction he had threatened. They repented and God relented. Even though they had been so wicked, and violent, and cruel, and brutal, and evil. When they turned, God turned. And that was always God's desire. We saw that from week one. God's desire was not to destroy them. God's desire is never to destroy any person. God's desire is never for any human to go to hell. Sometimes that might be your desire for somebody else. That is never God's desire. God's desire is always to show mercy. God's desire is always that people would repent so that he can forgive and turn his wrath away. I love what Jerry Bridges, a, a, a theologian, says. He says, on your worst day, you are never out of reach of God's grace. And on your best day, you are never out of need of God's grace. In other words, we always need God's grace. Revival hits Nineveh. 
Revival hits Nineveh. And I'd love to go into this more, but I don't have time. But basically, revival is where God's spirit is poured out and people repent. They become overwhelmed with a sense of their own sin and need for God and they turn to him and have changed lives. There is an awakening floods through that city and God powerfully moves. Revival has been described as a a, a, a community saturated with the presence of God. That's what I would love for Craig Oven. Imagine if instead of being known as a failed city, Craig Oven was known as a community saturated with the presence of God. That as you drove through this place on your way to Rushmere or to wherever you're going, that you would just go, there's something different in the air. Craig Oven needs revival. Portadown needs revival. Lurgan really, really needs revival. Warrenstown and Guilford need revival. Bambridge and Donna Cloney need revival. Moira and Lisburn need revival. Tandragee and Scarva need revival. We need an outpouring of God's spirit. We need God to move. And everything changes. You know, I read this and, you know, I thought it was funny that even the animals repented. <laughs> I mean, they didn't physically repent. They didn't pray. But the fact that they, the animals fasted and they put sackcloth on them just showed how serious they were. It wasn't some half-hearted, lukewarm repentance. These guys were serious. And, and, and revival comes when, when God's people, first of all, repent. And then it spreads out from the church to the world. But the story about the animals, you know, it reminded me of something that during the 1904 revival in Wales, apparently the coal mines came to a stoppage. Not because of strikes or because of disunity between the, the, the miners and the, 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 the management. But the horses couldn't work. Why? Because the horses had only ever been used to hear and swear words from the miners. And now that the miners were all getting saved, their language had changed. And so the horses couldn't understand what they were saying. Revival even affected the the animals at that time. Apparently in those days, the miners would come up and you would see the trails down their, 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 their coal-stained faces where they'd been weeping under the presence of God. God sent a warning to Nineveh. I'm finishing now. And the people took it seriously. And I can't help but wonder if God's sending a warning to us at this time. As you look at our world right now and the turbulence and upheaval of of 2020, I wonder, is God sending a warning? I wonder, is this just a red flashing light? Calling the church to repent and be revived and calling the world to come back to Christ. I wonder, has God given us warnings? The time is short, folks. There is an urgency. There is an urgency to share the gospel. Some of us need to recover that urgency to share Christ with people who don't know him. There is an urgency. And we need to be a people who who take that seriously. That we go out into the world and talk talk about Christ. That we talk about God's saving work through Christ on the cross. You know, one of my greatest joys in ministry as I finish with a story, has been to see people who were religious come to know the gospel. And I can think of one lady when I was in Lurgan called Margaret. 
Margaret was a wonderful churchgoer. She had been on various committees in the church, even held leadership positions. She was church warden. She was a chaplain in a women's organization. A lovely woman. I got on with her well. She was probably, I don't know, I always find it hard to guess, probably in her mid to late 50s. And she, she had bad asthma. She had always, all, all her life had, had asthma. And so she carried oxygen with her. And very often I would go around to her house to pray. And one Sunday I was preaching on the gospel from the prodigal son and how it's by grace, by faith, and not by works. And as she was coming out of church, I said, I'll pop in with you this week and I'll pray. And I went around and we chatted for a while. And I, I was about to pray for her for healing because I did that very regularly. But before I prayed with her for healing, the Holy Spirit stopped me. And I just said this, Margaret, is there anything else you want me to pray for? And she said, Craig, would you pray that I would have the courage to take a step, or that I would take the step today that you talked about on Sunday and receive Christ as my Savior? Well, I nearly fell off the sofa. This was a woman who everybody assumed was a Christian. This was a woman who was devout, religious, but she had never had a real relationship with Christ. And that day I led her in a prayer of repentance and faith in Christ. And can I say her life changed. People who had known her for decades said her whole countenance changed. Her whole demeanor changed. The way she spoke, she even looked different. Sadly, not long after that, Margaret went to be with Jesus. And I conducted the funeral. And the thing was this, Margaret's sister at the time was the mayor here in the area, mayoress, for the second term. And so at that funeral, there was about a thousand people. Most of the most important politicians in our country were there. And I remember standing there in this big church. And what a privilege it was to say that Margaret had finally come to understand that we're not saved by religion, we're not saved by good works, we're not saved by good deeds, we're not saved by going to church, we're not saved by being baptized. We are saved by Christ alone, through faith alone and grace alone. That's it. It's not what I have done, but what Christ has done. And today as I finish, I want to give you the opportunity to come to know Christ. God has been challenging me recently that I need to preach each week and give people an opportunity to to respond. So I'm going to do this every week, as much as I can remember. And I'm simply going to pray a very simple prayer now. And if you have never placed your trust in Christ, maybe you've been in church for years. Maybe you've been in positions of authority and responsibility. If you have never trusted in Christ for yourself, would you do something? Would you pray right now this prayer in your heart? And ask Jesus to come into your life. And would you do something else? If you do pray this, would you drop me a message on email, Facebook, whatever it is. And let me know you've prayed it. Would you join me now in praying this prayer? It's a very simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. Thank you that he took my sin and rose again. Today I choose to put my trust in Christ. I trust in the cross and the resurrection for salvation. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I repent of sin and today I turn my life over to you. Be Lord and King of my life. Thank you God for saving me. In Jesus name, Amen.